So let's dive into James. Uh, if you're here with us last week, you um, noticed that it was kind of a little bit of a different uh, Sunday morning. Uh, I've already had several people come up to me and say, I can tell this is already going to be a letdown sermon. Last week, you absolutely crushed it. It was amazing. It was the best sermon we've ever heard. And if you weren't here last week, all we did was read the book of James. And so that's why it was the best sermon that they, uh, that Redeemer has ever heard because uh, we are devoted to God's word. And one of the ways that we show, show that is I, I wanted us to see and hear the book of James the way that the early church would have heard it for, and received it for the very first time. But this is what's interesting about the book of James as we kind of, I give a little brief introduction before we dive into the text that Sarah read for us. Uh, there's some controversy around James. There really is. Uh, it's, it's probably the first controversy that I'd like to point out is it's a lot of commentators like to say that James is wisdom literature, like it's the only wisdom literature in the New Testament, uh, like back in Psalms and uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, James is kind of writing in that style here. And uh, you know what, that, that's fine. I, I know a lot of people love it because James is such a, a, a straightforward guy who is just kind of uh, presenting, do this, don't do that, be quick to listen, you know, tame the tongue, you know, do, do, do all this, resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's so many quotable lines in, in the the epistle of James. But as I really dove into James, I, I think he's way more gospel-centric than we like to give him credit for. I, I think he's really trying to hone in on these things are only really going to work if you have a spirit-filled, regenerated soul, and, and this is what it looks like to walk in transformational power with King Jesus. I love how James himself puts it, to hold fast in our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, this affectionate call that he has for the church of God to be transformed by the knowledge of knowing Christ. And so all the things that he is trying to present is really just dripped, absolutely dripped with this only works, this only works if the Spirit of God is carrying you along in all of this. So that's kind of the, the first controversy. Uh, second controversy for all you uh, Reformed nerds kind of out there, uh, Martin Luther wasn't a big fan of this book, all right? He was not a big fan. He said that this was an epistle of straw, which I guess is a big burn back in the 1500s. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really get it, but this is, oh, this was nothing. This is absolutely nothing because he thought it was contradict, contradictory to uh, the book of Romans, which whenever we get to that verse in uh, chapter 2, I promise you, uh, I shouldn't let the air out too quickly, but uh, I think they're going to harmonize. I really do think they're going to harmonize, but come back and we'll unpack it. We'll unpack it then. And then the third thing that's really, really cool that probably a lot of people have heard, in, uh, that, that who is James here? James is Jesus' brother or half-brother. Well, let's make that clear. <laughs> He's his half-brother. And what's really interesting about that is whenever the gospel writers talk about all of Jesus' siblings and brothers, they talk about them in kind of really negative light. One time they came up to Jesus whenever he was preaching, and um, they kind of, 
uh, walked up to Jesus and like, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing out here? You're in like Samaria, and this is JV back here. You're preaching JV. Why don't you go to Judea? That's what you need. You need to do that. And the gospel writer very clearly shares with us they were saying this because they didn't believe in him. They were mocking him openly to his face while he was teaching his half-brother. His half-brother, James, was, was a part of this band that uh, didn't believe in Jesus. Can you imagine? Uh, I mean, can you imagine, though, um, how hard it would be to believe, uh, believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Let's, let's quit, take a quick poll. How many of y'all have brothers? Raise your hand if you have a brother. Um, high, high and proud. Very good. All right, so about 50% of the room. That makes sense statistically. All right, what would it take to convince you that your brother was God. There lies James' problem, right? There, there, there lies James' problem. He, he was, James was the first person to hear WWJD all the time. What would Jesus do? And this was like all, the only disciplined thing that Mary gave. It was like, oh, James, you're so terrible. Why can't you be more like Jesus? And so, of course, he kind of just resented. He just kind of resented his half-brother, Jesus, because he was perfect in all that. And then, according to 1 Corinthians... Uh, we see very clearly that um, Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to James, and he said, my Lord, my God, you, you are the Son of God. And he repented, and he was, so, he was such a powerful leader, I guess, just through osmosis of growing up with Jesus, they made him the head of the church of Jerusalem, the head of the church of Jerusalem. And this is his epistle. These are his words that we have right now right now that we can expound uh, to the glory of the Lord. So pretty, pretty cool, but some controversy there uh, as kind of a, a brief way to introduce uh, this, this whole series, which we are calling what uh, gospel-centered community. This is what gospel-centered community looks like. That's what James is writing about. But the first 18 verses that we, that we see here are all, all primarily about suffering are all about suffering. He says here in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, whenever you meet pain, suffering, trials. And, he, and notice he says multiple, not just one. Not just like if, you know, Starbucks got your order wrong and you didn't know until 15 minutes later whenever you, whenever you drink. And it, and it wasn't like, oh, my kids have been whiny today. And, you know, it, 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 wasn't, just, it wasn't just one. Or it wasn't just, you know, like, oh, I had a flat tire or, or anything like that. It was uh, manifold. This word various is, means there's multicolored trials. And, and, and the couple of things that it teaches us right out of the gate is Christians will have suffering. Christian, Christians will have trials. Christianity is not a pathway to, to eliminate suffering the same way that Buddhism tr is trying to communicate that if you just get rid of all of your desires, this is Buddhism in a nutshell, if you get rid of all of your desires, then you will eliminate suffering. Christianity is more honest than that. Suffering seems to be the common thread that unites all of the world. We are all sufferers here on this earth. It's the, the common thing that holds us all together. I mean, yes, there's various kinds. Yes, there's different. Different, 
different degrees at different times in life. There's more death over here sometimes. There's more poverty over here. Um, These are the vows that we take whenever we are getting married to someone. We're kind of talking about the extremes of suffering, that you're promising future love, that I'm going to love you no matter how much suffering that we actually have to endure and go through. This is what it's talking about talking about. So James is trying to communicate to us that, uh, that, that suffering isn't going to happen, but you need to count it joy when a manifold uh, amount of suffering happens. Whenever you have a flat tire while your kids are crying, and then you get a, a sweet drink of your coffee, and ah, it's the wrong thing. That's whenever you're supposed to say, I'm thrilled. I'm happy. I count it joy, Lord. And then you get robbed right after that, Okay. <laughs> That's whenever you're supposed to say, oh, I count it all joy. You say, Cody, how? And what do you mean? Uh, Because it seems like you're probably thinking, well, is he telling us to be crazy people? Because aren't crazy people so disconnected from reality whenever uh, dumb stuff happens, like in um, Talladega Nights, whenever he stabs his leg, and then he tries to use the other knife to to cut around the other leg to get... get, Anyways, that was just me. All right. (laughs) But uh, if you've seen that movie, uh, crazy people are the only ones that rejoice uh, under suffering, right? No. Also, also... People that know how to use suffering, people that know something unique about what God is doing in the world and how he's using suffering can also use it to, to achieve to achieve uh, a greater outcome than what the suffering is, is just by itself. All right? So what is it? Is he calling us to be crazy and insane, or is he calling us to know something? Look at verse 3. For you know... There it is, all right? Isn't calling us to be crazy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces steadfastness. This is a a kind of a universal truth that we all uh, kind of get. Think of lifting weights. Think of lifting weights. You go through temporary suffering during the workout to gain a future glory or to achieve a future goal um, in the future. This is why you practice in athletics, right? Why are you out there hitting tennis balls over and over? It's like you've served a million, billion times. We get it. I'm good at it. It's going to go in about 80% of the time, right, or 50% of the time. All right, um, why, why are you doing that? Because the suffering now is going to produce a greater weight, a greater glory, a greater goal or achievement down the road. Down the road. Um, we also know this uh, about dieting. Yesterday, I had Chipotle, and I substituted my beautiful brown rice that I love for cauliflower rice. What's up with that? Who invented it? And why did I try it? Because I love my wife, I love my kids, and I want to be around for a very long time, (laughs) okay? And so I'm doing temporary suffering now so I don't have terrible suffering down the road through my my dieting, all right? This is, it's the same in education. Listen, college students, college students, your professors know that you have not memorized your textbook. (laughs) Your professors know that you cram for your test, all right? Your professors know that uh, there's going to be some things that go, go in, in one ear. You know it for about four hours while you take the test. And then as soon as you turn that test in, test in 
all the information that you just crammed in your brain for the last 24 hours is gone. They know that. But a lot of what education is is just a test of endurance, a test of endurance to, to persevere, persevere, to get through it. And whenever you get through it, it's, uh, it's achieving something that we want in the future to where we can use the suffering that we're going through now to achieve something and to mold us and to make us into something beautiful down the road. And this is what it says in verse 4. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what can suffering do? Suffering can produce within you, as you go through it, a steadfastness that completes you somehow, that completes you. And that's what James is trying to communicate to us. Uh, my, my little girl, Evan, um, with her educational status right now, she's five years old, I say something to her. I'm like, Evan, I want you to count to 30. I want you to count to 30, okay? Do it. And she's like, oh, Dad. Dad, I always get stuck at 11. I Every time, 11. I don't know what it is after 12. I, I've never even heard you say that. But down the road, I, everyone in this room, not everyone, okay, not everyone, all right? Noah probably doesn't know how to count to 30. But most everyone over 7 has no problem counting to 30. No big deal. Why? We can grow and grow if we go through the suffering now of our learning, of our, of our pain, of our dieting, of our exercise. This is a universal truth that God has built into the fabric of reality so that we can gain wisdom. So that we can gain wisdom. And let me read um, verse, four, uh, verse 3 and 4 one more time. Uh, just, so, just so we can uh, sharpen, our, sharpen our minds on it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice that, notice that phrase, have full effect. Let steadfastness complete, come to fruition. You know what that's saying? It's saying that we can let our suffering not take its full effect. And that's scary. We can go through suffering in a way to where we can pout and pout and pout. And we can stomp our ears and just be angry about that, the fact that we're in suffering right now. And we cannot let our trials, our suffering, our pain teach us anything that God wants to teach us through it. That is an objective reality that I think defines our cultural moment right now. COVID-19. I, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it anyways. How many of y'all in the COVID-19 saga have just been, you know what, I count, it, I count this all joy. How many just crushing it? Perfectly applying this verse. Perfectly, uh, immediately, as soon as they said global pandemic, numbers through the roof. All right, how many just went uh, immediately to James chapter 1 and just said, perfect application right here, of course, count it all joy, boom. No, no. I know, I know, just like you and just like me, we are dominated by fear. We're dominated with arrogance and pride. 
that everyone else is wrong except for my perspective. My perspective is probably the best one. I probably have the best. I need to be on the news telling everyone what to think about whenever they think about COVID-19. I'm the one who's got it figured out. Or, or you're like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not afraid, and I'm not trying to tell everyone what to do. I'm the one that's just easygoing, hanging out in the background, just letting the whole thing play out, just kind of listening to both sides and smiling. You don't think you're smug and arrogant from that position either? One of my favorite social commentators, cultural commentators, uh, said this. The one thing that is universally going on in COVID-19 right now is this idea of our culture has an air of superiority. Everyone thinks that their perspective is the right way. way. Everyone does. So they're not using COVID-19 to look deep in what's going on in their heart. They're saying, I have figured this thing out, and instead of learning and grieving and mourning about the things that are going on, I have now said, I have the right perspective, and all of social media must know it. Or you're just scrolling social media, and maybe you're not actually posting anything, but you're just, you're just trolling. You're just like, oh, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I would say this, and I would say this, and blah, blah, blah. Or maybe, oh, I've had enough. i got to say it. Okay? My question is this. How many of us, over the course of COVID-19, have been like, the number one thing that I need right now is wisdom from God? Because what this passage is saying is this is not just talking about normal wisdom. Whenever it talks about in, in right here in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, um, let him ask God. This wisdom is not just universal Proverbs wisdom, wisdom. This is James saying this is a very specific wisdom that is needed in the midst of trials. That none of us are born with it. None of us just come out of the womb saying, I know exactly what to do whenever trials of various kinds come about. He says, this is something that is only given by God. You have to ask him for it. You have to ask him for it. So my question is this. How many of us, how many of us during COVID-19 have really honestly stopped and said, God, give me wisdom. And let me be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry about what's going on. Let me weep with those who weep. Let me mourn with those who mourn. My fear, my fear is this, is we are all sitting in this room. And I, I, I admit it. I know, I'm confessing right now that there has been times during this, during this entire thing that I've said, well, at least I'm not like them. Or at least I don't have that perspective. Or at least I'm not living in blank. Right? And what God, I think, is teaching us in this cultural moment, as we're diving into this book, as we're diving into this book that's all about how Christians suffer well in the midst of gospel community, is we need to come to the understanding that the wisdom it takes to navigate this appropriately does not come naturally to my own heart. And so if I have an instinct about something, I need to stop and pause and go to the word of God and say, Lord, I'm feeling this way. These emotions are welling up within me. Are these godly? Do these bring you glory and honor? And if not, I'm quick to listen to God's word and to, and to his bride. I'm slow to speak and slow to become 
angry. Because what's going on, what's going on in our cultural moment um, is this idea of we've taken our sides, we've drawn our swords, we've prepared our hearts for battle, to take our battle all the way to social media and, to de- and say, if you defy me on the other side, we go to war now. And that is not okay. It's not okay. And what God is calling us to right now is to ask for wisdom in the midst of our suffering. To ask for it. To ask for it. But not to doubt. Carl Truman, uh, who I've talked about this book before. Davis turned me on to uh, this book. And I I read it before him. And so, air of superiority, right? (laughs) Help me, Lord, help me repent, okay? (laughs) Still hasn't finished it. He needs to finish it. But the last chapter gives a polemic. The last chapter gives uh, an example of what should we be doing since this is accurately defining our cultural moment. And one of the things that he said is he said this. Listen to me. He says, we have to define truth in the context of our Christian community with open Bibles in hand. Okay? The truth that we derive that shapes our worldview, that shapes our worldview of how we think through things, needs to happen always in the context of Christian community in your local church with open Bibles and open hearts. Because this is what's going on in cancel culture. Cancel culture has done this has done this to us, and it's really, really scary. We only, we only listen to the person who feels most passionately about one perspective or another perspective, and then everyone else doesn't talk about it. Everyone else kind of drifts into the background and says, this person's really passionate about this thing over here. This person's really passionate about this perspective over here. Let me just let them decide, and I don't want any part of it. Truman says, no, no. We should go to God with wisdom, and we should be unified as the church. The church has to be unified in how we come to worldview problems. Because listen, listen, whenever the church is suffering, we're all suffering. Amen? Whenever someone in in our congregation is suffering, we need to be such a close-knit body of believers that we say, their suffering is my suffering. And if we... Let the enemy divide us on petty little things by saying, well, my truth over here says this, and this truth over here is better, or it's more, it's more logical, and this one over here is more empathetic. No, we have to say, we're coming together with open Bibles and open hearts, and we're saying, I know you're passionate about this brother. I know you're passionate about this sister. Let's not leave until we're uni- united in Christ and until we are united on the word of God to help shape our worldview right here, okay? Now, this is radical. This is not, I'm not saying that we have to agree on every single little thing. I'm saying we have to agree on how we come to our conclusions, which is united, which is united, saying we are under the headship, not of this news perspective or that news perspective. We're under the headship of Christ himself, who is controlled, who, who is the head of the church, and he's the arbiter of our truth, who, is, who has a, a, a manifold wisdom about him, who is logical and empathetic, and is oh, he, he dumbfounds uh, the conservatives, and he dumbfounds the liberals at the exact same time. 
This is the wisdom that we need to strive for as a gospel community in the midst of our suffering. Because listen, whenever the world is one spark away from exploding, the church cannot explode with it. We cannot explode with it. We have to come together as a unified body and not say, just because this person is passionate about this and this person is passionate about them, I'm just going to avoid those two people and just kind of live in the background. No, we have to enter into what is the worldview of this local body? What is the worldview of this local body? And let's come in unity and in truth, surrounded by the Holy Spirit, and derive, derive real, true wisdom that comes from the Lord. Amen? Can we agree? I know that's really, really, really hard. But let's devote ourselves to it. This is why we have uh, gospel communities here. You, you've probably heard of small groups. But gospel communities are, are basically, uh, the, the, the definition of them is in their name. All right? They're a community of people that have different cultural backgrounds, different backgrounds that we are united and conformed under the image of Christ. And we say, we are family, and we're going to make family decisions together. Even whenever we don't agree, we're going to come together and devote ourselves to the word of God and not leave until we're united in Christ and united, united in truth. And so, I know that was, I know that was long, but what it's communicating to us here in James is that we need to be complete, lacking in nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, we go to God. We go to God with it. Not, not to the blogosphere, not to social media. We go to God himself. We get on our knees and we go to him. And so what do trials do? They, produce, they push us towards wisdom. They push us towards wisdom. And what's ironic about all of this is also we need wisdom to go through our trials to go through our trials. But look how, he, look how he demands us to ask for wisdom. This is, this is amazing. He says, as you're looking for wisdom, don't be double-minded. So that's kind of a weird phrase, right? Double-minded, what, what does that mean? It means uh, don't be divided in your loyalties. Don't be divided in your loyalties. Jesus said this, and it was really interesting. He said, uh, there's one man, the wise man builds his house on the rock so that the the wind and the waves, whenever they come, when various trials come, it is firm on the foundation of the rock. And he says, a foolish man builds his house on the sand right next to the beach. And it might look nice and it might be cool, but as soon as the wind and waves come, what happens? It washes the foundation completely away. And what I think happens a lot of times, and what he's trying to warn us against, is, is he's saying, don't. He's saying, make sure that you're not kind of on the rock and also kind of on the sand. All right? Don't be divided in your loyalties. Go all in one way or the other. Because, because the sand is going to do you no good. But it, this, is what's, this is what also is interesting. He's saying that trials, trials show you where your foundation actually is. Wind and waves reveal to you where your foundation actually is. You know what that means? You know what that means? It means that when something happens in your life, when you don't get the grade that you wanted to get, and you are not just sad because you tried hard and you failed, or you didn't try hard and you failed and your parents found out about it, all right? That hit that sting a little bit? Okay. Okay. Um, 
whenever that happens, and if you are just hurt by it, um, yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, totally, totally sad. But um, it's just part of life. Try again next time. But if that happens to you and you are devastated, you, you feel like life cannot continue because I failed this class and it messed up my degree plan. And you are absolutely devastated. You know what that shows you? It shows you that your loyalties are divided, that your, your firm foundation is not on Christ and Christ alone. It's on your identity of being ex-student or achieving uh, this amount of income. Or, or, or moms, whenever you're at a play date or something and, um, and your kids are just perfect angels. No, they're terrible. They're the worst they've ever been in the history of the world. And you come home and you're just like, everyone to your room. I can't talk to you right now. Um, and for the rest of the day, or maybe even the rest of the week, you're devastated. You're absolutely devastated. You're like, we can't go anywhere anymore. Um, uh, we're never going on another play date. That friend, that friendship is gone. Uh, I deleted them right out of my phone. I'm not never hanging out with them again. It's just, it's just impossible. Can't do it. What is that revealing to us? It's revealing that our firm foundation that we're building our life is not on the rock. It's on the sand. So what do trials do as they produce wisdom within us? They reveal what our idols are. They reveal what we're actually putting our hope in. That's what trials do. And if you go through trials and you realize, and listen, if you go through trials, and I know people like this that have said, I believed in God all my life and I grew up in church. But as soon as that happened, that was too much, and I lost my faith in God. I absolutely lost my faith in God. You know what that reveals? It doesn't reveal that they apostatized and they lost their salvation. What it reveals is, it, 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 that, is that they were never on the firm foundation. They were never building their house on the rock. And the trials just revealed that to them. The trials just exposed. So we need wisdom. We need wisdom to be able to navigate through all of this. And this is what James is saying. Get wisdom. Ask God for it. Because whenever trials come, they reveal where your heart's allegiance actually is. First Peter talks about this in First Peter chapter 1, verse 7, which said, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes even though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are like a refiner's fire that purifies the Christian and exposes the non-Christian in our midst. That's what trials actually do. That's what they do. And so what this passage is teaching us is that really, really God is like a good dad who disciplines his children to where when they reach for the knife, he says, no, that is unhealthy for you. And I know that slap hurt. I know that was unpleasant. I know you feel like that was suffering, but really that was mercy. That was sovereign, sanctifying mercy for me to keep you from doing the things that will lead to your destruction. And so what else does pain teach us? What else does it teach us? It teaches us that pain is not forever. Pain teaches us that pain is not forever. You say, Cody, does that even make sense? Is that proper English? Yes. Yes, listen, um, let me explain it to you in a way that uh, I heard Pascal explain this. Blaise Pascal, who said this, he said, uh, I've never had anyone come up to me and complain that they didn't have a second mouth. 
Isn't that funny? Isn't that a funny image, right? No one's come up to me and been like, you know what? I'm mad at God. I hate him just because I only have the one mouth. And it's just, weird. you know, like, I'm, I'm really hungry. I want the two. You know, no one, has, no one has ever come up to me about that. No one ever came up to him, apparently, which is exciting because he lived a long time ago. And he said, listen, no one ever does these things. Why? Because it's not even an option. We can't conceive of it. And we, we don't rail against the things that we can't conceive of. And remember I said at the very beginning of this, what is the one thing that unites us all? Here on this earth, what unites us? We all are suffering in various degrees. All across the world, there is not a country out there. There's not a people, there's not a nation, there's not an ethnic group out there that has somehow eliminated suffering. No, it's ubiquitous across, across the whole of earth. And yet, listen to me, we all experience it, and yet we constantly rail against it. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? This is the thing that we should all say, well, this is just how life is. I don't have two mouths, so I'm not mad at, mad at it. In the same way, we all suffer, so why are we mad at it? Because in our soul, look, look at me, in our soul we know that it should not be this way. You want evidence that God actually exists? Look at how you hate suffering in your own life and in the life of those around you. That's proof that you were made for this, not this place. You were made for something more. You were made for a place that had no tears, no pain, no suffering. We can conceive in our heart, deep in our soul, that we were actually made for a utopia, a perfect garden to dwell with God. We were made to love each other as ourselves. We were made to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But yet, but yet we don't. Isn't that clear evidence? Isn't that clear evidence that we were made in the image of God for God, for God himself? So this proves this proves the fact that we all rail against it, that pain will be temporary because it proves God. It proves that God will ultimately deal with it as well. You say, Cody, how? How will God ultimately deal? Well, he already has in a sense, and he hasn't yet in a sense. What does this lead us to? This idea of pain and trials and sufferings, what gives us any hope? It sound, this almost sounds like a, a good pep talk, right? Well, endure pain and suffering because it will forge you into uh, pure gold and it will give you wisdom and it will do all these things. Just, so just take it well, Cody. Just, just take it. You can do it. It will turn you into a man. No. That's just law following. That's just rule following. Um, sure, you can do it for a little bit, but not forever. Only if, look at me, you realize that the God who put in your heart that I wasn't made for suffering entered into the suffering itself and said, I will come down. I will come down and I will endure the pain. I will endure the suffering. I'll endure the loss. I'll lose my father. I'll lose my stepdad. I'll lose all these things. My friends will betray me. Every single bit of suffering that you can think, even being paralyzed and nailed to a cross, he says, I will take in your place. And look what he does with that suffering. He brings the salvation of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. 
So what Jesus does here, what God is trying to reveal to us is that he uses suffering for his profound glory. He uses it for his profound glory. And, and what James knows is he knows that we don't believe this. We believe a lie. That's what verses 13 through 18 says. That's what it says. It says, we don't believe the truth. We believe a lie. That whenever we're going through suffering, we say, God, put me here. He's the one tempting me. He's the one after me. We believe the same lie that happened in the garden. You remember that one? That lie that happened in the garden? Did God really say you cannot eat from every tree of the garden? God's holding out on you. He's holding out on you. Don't trust that God. And we fall for it every single day. We don't trust him in the midst of our trials and our pain. How can we? It's only by looking on him. Looking on him who suffered and died in our place. Whenever you realize that he had undivided loyalty to you, only when you recognize that he had undivided loyalty to you will it melt your heart to be able to withstand the pain and suffering that you're going through right now, saying, I can trust him. He suffered in my place, so I can stay as well. You know that story of uh, Thermopylae, right? Uh, the 300 Spartans who stayed. Why, why is that such an <laughs> um, amazing story that we still believe today? Because of the sacrifice, right? They stayed all 300 of them died. The kill ratio for those that were interested in this was 18 to 1. They killed 18 Persians before all 300 of them um, passed. And that's am what's amazing about that story is they knew they were going to die. And they ran. They ran to protect their homeland. And that has stayed in human consciousness for over 2,300 years now. Why? Because we're made for the exact same story. We're made for the story of, as Hebrews 12 tells us, that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And in the greatest act of love the world has ever seen, whenever all the suffering that you and I can't even imagine was falling down on him, you know what he did? He stayed. He stayed there for you. And only when you see that can you have the right perspective in the midst of your suffering right now. Or you'll believe the lies that James is warning us about in this passage. God, you don't really love me. I can't really trust you. You, you alone are the reason for all of this death and decay going on around. And James says, no, beloved brothers and sisters, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from him. My hope for us as a church is that we look to him with gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing that he stayed in our place on that cross so that you and I, whenever we go through suffering, we will be unmovable as well. Let's pray.